Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. Can supernovae account for all of the oxygen in the universe? What happens to massive stars at the end of their lives? This month on Naked Astronomy, we'll be exploring why we don't see supernovae from the biggest stars, asking what you can do for science, and catching up with the latest in space science news. We'll be hearing about the sad case of Phobos Grunt, where the very first stars might be smaller than we thought, and the subsurface lakes discovered on one of Jupiter's moons. I'm Ben Valsler, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. First, Dr. Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society brings us up to date with news from the RAS and what to train your eye on in the skies this month. Well, this month uh, the RAS hosted a public lecture on infrared astronomy. Now, that's not the kind of first time we've ever tackled something like this, but I think it's quite timely. And the reason I think that is it actually has to coincide with one piece of good news, which is around the James Webb Space Telescope which, if listeners aren't aware of it, is basically the successor to the Hubble Space Telescope, a huge infrared observatory that will be launched in a few years' time. And the money for that seems to have been secured today, which is, I think, good news for astronomy across the world, really. It was uh, under threat for quite some time. But anyway, it's also about 200-odd years since uh, infrared radiation was discovered, and it was actually discovered because... uh, William Herschel, who happens to be our our first president, put a thermometer beyond the red end of the spectrum and found that the temperature rose, so realized something was going on. And it indicated that the light that we see with our eyes is just really a small part of the way we study the universe. And infrared is a a very important wavelength beyond that. So we can actually find out a lot about the wider universe by looking beyond visible light. It's enabled us really to look through these enormous clouds of dust that actually obscure a lot of the visible light from other reaches of the universe. So it really has been very key to discovering things that we we just couldn't have seen using visible light alone. Infrared allows us to see through, as you say, clouds of dust and gas. It allows us to see things which are warm rather than hot. So, for example, if you inside one of these dirt, clouds of gas and dust, the best name for them is nebulae, but if you, if you look inside a nebula, you can see forming stars. And as they contract under the influence of gravity, they don't, they don't start off very, very hot. They actually gently warm up to begin with. And infrared allows us to see that in action. It also lets us see into the heart of galaxies because most galaxies, the centre of them, has usually got quite a lot of dust and gas in the centre there, and we can see what's going on. So that's how we, or one of the ways anyway, that we're aware of black holes in the centre of so many galaxies. And the James Webb Space Telescope, as you said, it's been a little bit up in the air recently as to whether or not it would actually get the funding. It's now secure, it's going ahead. What sorts of science do we expect to see coming from that? The big thing for James Webb is to look right back to the beginning of the universe. Now, uh, it, the 
basically the further away something is in astronomy, the, the light travels at a finite speed, and that means we're, we're seeing it further back in time. And at its most extreme, we can look back more than 13,000 million years into the past, or, or not that long after the universe began, after the Big Bang. And the aim of James Webb is, one of the aims anyway, is to see the very first stars that formed. It's hard to do that using visible light because they're quite red-shifted uh, because the expansion of the universe, they, they appear to be moving away from us quite quickly. This, is, this all sounds like quite esoteric, actually, because in, in most cases, these very first stars will, will no longer exist, but nonetheless, we still detect light from them. Anyway, the redshift reddens the light from these stars, and if you, that means if you have an infrared telescope, you can detect them more easily because the light is so reddened, and that's one of the big aims of James Webb. It needs a big mirror, and it's got one that'll be six and a half meters across because they're also very, very faint. And once that's up and running in a few years' time, we should be able to see the very first galaxies and stars that formed in the universe. So we're actually looking at light that was in the visible region when it was originally put out all those billions of years ago that's been redshifted so much that now it's only there in the infrared so it's not just a case of looking at warm things but also it can tell us something about light that was released when it was very very hot but a very long time ago and a very long way away well that's exactly right and that technique applies you know not just to the very first stars but also to an awful lot of the distant universe um, the, the overall expansion of the universe actually means that an awful lot of objects are like this and, and certainly the further away you look the more important this technique becomes one of the other things that we'll do closer to home as well, I should stress, is to look for uh, forming planets as well, which tend to be obscured within dust clouds around stars. So that's another technique where infrared really comes into its own. And, and actually, we wouldn't have discovered these things without that side of astronomy. Well, bringing things back down to Earth, um, we've had a very successful launch this month as well. Yeah, the Russians uh, successfully launched the uh, the Soyuz TMA-22 spacecraft. It's the, the last one of its type in this series. Um, I should say that the Soyuz vehicles, in a sense, they haven't moved on a great deal from the 1960s. It's a very incremental development, nonetheless a very successful one. And they've been running for about, well, 40 years and more. Uh, but this, this, there was some concern about this. This is a mission that was, is taking astronauts to the International Space Station. And the concern was that... Uh, a couple of months ago, the same rocket launched a cargo craft up to the space station, and it actually uh, didn't make it. There was a blocked fuel pipe, and it, it uh, had to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, so it never made it. So there were some delays to the flight. There were concerns about getting astronauts up to the space station, and actually concerns that if it wasn't possible to, to resupply it, that they might have to evacuate it and bring people back down to Earth. But that seems to have been delayed now. It seems to be fine. And just finally for this month, what can we expect to see if we look up into the night sky? Well, uh, one of the highlights of the month, I mean, the, the, as you go into the winter, I think, first of all, it's a nice time to look at the skies anyway, because the skies are darker. It's one of the, the uh, benefits of it being dark early, even though we perhaps don't enjoy the short days, is that you can at least see things in the night sky more easily and at a more convenient time. And on the 27th of November, one thing to look out for is a nice conjunction between Venus and a very thin crescent moon. And if you've got a very low southwestern horizon and you're looking out, perhaps about 20 to 5 in the evening towards the, towards the southwest, you should be able to see Venus and the very young moon. And the nice thing about the young moon is that it's um, a very thin crescent, but you can also see the, the night side of it lit up with light from the Earth, what's called Earth shine. So it really can be quite a spectacular sight. It's, it's not hugely unusual, but this isn't a bad time to look out for it. They'll both be quite low in the sky. Venus is always dazzlingly bright and pretty much unmistakable, which is why a lot of people occasionally report it as a UFO. But a great thing to look out for, just something to enjoy the view, really. 
I couldn't help but notice earlier this month that Jupiter seemed to be incredibly bright. We've just been through uh, last month an opposition of Jupiter, and uh, that's when it's closest to the Earth. If you imagine the Earth going around the sun once a year, uh, when we're on the same side of the sun as Jupiter, that's when we're closest to it. Jupiter moves rather more slowly, and uh, that's when it's brightest. And you're, and you're absolutely right, it's gone through a very close opposition, and it's still pretty good to look at. If you look in the early evening over towards the east, you'll see it rising through the night, and quite a spectacular sight. Like Venus, actually, it's well worth looking at with a pair of binoculars, too. Um, in, the, in the case of Venus and the Moon, you can see, well, you can see craters on the Moon. You can see the, the phases of Venus when it's close enough, even with a pair of binoculars. With Jupiter, you can certainly see that it's a, a disk rather than a, uh, rather than a star. So it's obvious it's a planet. And you can see four moons going around it as well, the ones that uh, Galileo discovered 400 years ago. Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society will have more astronomy news later on. But first, ask not what science can do for you, but what you can do for science. Andrew Ponson met up with Oxford University's Chris Lintott. Chris, you are the PI on uh, the Zooniverse projects, which get people involved with real science. And you've had a number of high-profile successes in doing that over the last few years, in particular recently with the Planet Hunters project. So how is it that you've managed to be so successful in getting everybody involved in real science? Yeah, it's been still a bit of a mystery to us. Uh, We have almost half a million people signed up now taking part in projects that really produce science. And I think that's probably, if anything, the key, the fact that we spend a lot of our time finding ways in which people can take part that make a real authentic contribution to doing science. So there are loads of ways to follow along with scientists, whether it's podcasts like this or watching Brian Cox or or reading a magazine or surfing the vast wealth of content on the net. But I think what we try to do is find ways where the help of people who aren't scientists can really be useful, where people can make discoveries and when they can contribute to the exploration of the universe. And it turns out it's actually rather reassuring, I think, that there's a desire out there for people to do more with their time and to spend some of their time uh, helping us discover things rather than maybe just, just playing Angry Birds. So if you take something like Planet Hunters, for instance, you've had successes in finding planets from real data where computers have failed to do that. So why is it that people can can do certain things where computers just can't? Well, I think there's a couple of things. One is that these tasks are essentially pattern recognition tasks. And so in the case of planet hunters, we're looking for the dip in light that's caused when a planet travels in front of its parent star. We call this a transit. Picking that out against the noise, against the variability, the the fact that the star itself is changing brightness, that observations aren't always exactly steady, um, picking that out is just a pattern recognition task. And we evolved to be very good at those. It's the same species of task as picking out a tiger amongst the jungle or finding fruit against uh, a background of... You can tell I know no evolutionary biology. But, you know, that, that sort of pattern recognition, face recognition, is a really good example. Despite millions and millions and millions of dollars spent on trying to build a system that can recognize faces, and they're getting not bad now, we're still much better at that than, than computers. And so there, there are these spaces where uh, a scientific study still comes down to the pattern recognition, and there humans have a bit of an edge. Um, With Planet Hunters, I think the really interesting thing is that we're using the humans as a test of the computers. The computers get first look at the data, 
Uh, there's a whole team of software engineers and scientists who've built a system to detect planets. They find lots themselves. Um, and then we get the data, and we are able to feed back to them and say, actually, you missed this one. And sometimes they can look at it and say, oh, yeah, well, we know why that got missed, and it's a compromise. And there have been one or two interesting things we found where they have no idea why the computer's missed out. And so we can use that information to improve the automatic routines. And we need to do that. This harmony between man and machine is going to get very important because the amount of data that astronomers collect keeps growing. And so if you look five or ten years into the future, I think the only way to deal with the, the avalanche of data that's coming our way is to have machines look at a lot of it and then call for help when they need human assistance. And so, so we're working on building sort of that symbiosis. That sounded a bit sinister. It's not supposed to. Man-machine symbiosis. But no, but, but working together in a harmonious future. <laughs> Let's go with that. Recently, Zooniversal, though it started with astronomy projects, has branched out into new areas of citizen science. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about how that transition came about uh, and uh, a, a couple of the new projects that uh, have uh, appeared in the last year or so? Sure. Well, when we launched the first project, Galaxy Zoo, that was hugely successful, I started getting emails and phone calls from other researchers who uh, were suffering similar problems to astronomers that have way too much data to analyse with a couple of students and whatever software they have off the shelf. And so we decided to try and help these people. Um, and so we've launched our first few non-astronomical projects. We have uh, one called Old Weather, which is rescuing climate data from handwritten ship's logs. It's wonderful. You get to fly, uh, voyage along with the, the ship and get a bit of the history um, but rescue climate data so that we can test our computer models of the weather. Um, and one called Ancient Lives, which is looking at uh, ancient papyri. So it's another handwriting task. But these are Greek papyri found in Egypt, uh, dug out the ground about 100 years ago. And most of them have been unread since then. Um, and so we can rescue what's on the text. I'm hoping that that will prove to be an astronomical project. There should be a few astronomical or astrological texts in there. But the, again, it's an example of pattern recognition tasks, and we've got lots more of those to come because this, this sense that we're being overwhelmed by data is shared amongst all scientists, almost all scientists. And this is one very good way uh, to use human ingenuity in a bit of spare time to try and solve these problems. But I'm hoping that you haven't abandoned astronomy either. Have you got any uh, exciting new astronomy projects coming along in the next few months? Sure. Uh, well, actually, I think the first exciting thing is that our existing projects continue to get new data. So we've just put some brand new data into Planet Hunters. So if you want a fresh planet, a new chance at discovering something, you should get to the site pretty quickly. Uh, we're looking at putting some more galaxies from a big Hubble Space Telescope survey into Galaxy Zoo the original project, so that we can understand the past of the universe as well as the present, which is what we've been looking, looking at until now. Um, but I think next year might well be, for us at least, the era of radio astronomy. So we have, uh, there's a lot of effort going into big uh, radio surveys at the minute with a build-up to a new telescope called the Square Kilometre Array. It's going to be just incredible. We'll detect, I think the statistic is, airport, if you have an airport radar on a planet around any of the nearest couple of hundred stars, we'll, we'll hear it with the SKA. And so that, that's going to produce an insane amount of data. It's just not worth trying to even contemplate. It's petabytes of data. And so I think that's a big area for us. So there are a couple of places we're looking. We're building a project that will look live at radio data. We'll look for signals uh, and transients, things that change in the radio sky. And we're building a project that will help us compare uh, the radio sky, say a radio image of a galaxy, to a 
visible image of the galaxy. So next year is the year of radio astronomy. And I think what's driving that partly is the fact we've got all this data coming, but also from planet hunters, we learned that people aren't just seduced by a pretty picture. So it's not just you know, Galaxy Zoo where you classify pictures of galaxies, and some of them are beautiful, and that's a motivation for some people. But we're now more confident than ever that people are really interested in this because they want to help with the science, uh, and, and that will help as we get to, to, to the radio projects. So watch out for, for all of that coming next year. You can always find all of our projects at zooniverse.org. So if you sign up and keep an eye on, we'll, we'll let you know when there are new things coming. Chris Lintott from Oxford University. If you'd like to know more about the importance of citizen science, we've recently published an article about it on the Naked Scientist website. You can find that at thenakedscientists.com slash articles. This is Naked Astronomy, and still to come we'll be asking why we don't seem to see supernovae involving massive stars. But first, it's time for a couple of your questions. Dominic Ford takes on this one from Silver Angel, who asks if it's possible for planets to form close to the centre of the galaxy. Well, we don't actually understand very well what environmental conditions you need to form a planetary system around a star, mainly because planetary orbits are chaotic and they're very difficult to mathematically model. But what we have been able to do in the last few years is to run computational simulations of planetary orbits and to see how they're affected when, for example, another star flies very close past. And I'm thinking in particular of the work that Melvin Davies has been doing at Lund, which he actually talked about on this podcast back in August 2010, I think. And what he's concluded is that planetary orbits certainly of planets like the Earth, are really quite fragile. Uh, Hot Jupiters, which are large planets very close in to their stars, might be rather more robust. But for the most part, any close interaction with another star is enough to, to really mess up a planetary system. So that probably means that, for example, there aren't Earth-like planets in dense star clusters, such as globular clusters or dense open clusters. And you would have a similar issue around the galactic centre where you've got this massive black hole of six million times the mass of the sun. And that would probably mean that there aren't Earth-like planets within a few light years of that black hole. In fact, not least because there's also quite a dense cluster of stars around that black hole that we don't really understand because we don't think it can have formed in that environment. So we wonder how it could have migrated so close to that black hole. But that's only the central few light years. The bulge of the galaxy is thousands of light years across. And so for most of the volume of that bulge, you could probably have planetary systems that would be stable. The second part of Silver Angel's question is actually, what would the night sky on a planet that close to the galactic centre actually look like? Well, one of the really obvious features of the night sky that we see is the Milky Way, which is a band across the sky because we're embedded in this thin disk of stars. Now, if you're in the middle of the bulge of the galaxy, then you'll have stars all around you in all different directions and you'll see a much smoother distribution of stars across the night sky. And I would have thought that you also got a lot of much brighter stars close to you and you could argue that the night sky isn't actually going to be that dark anymore. 
Thank you very much. Uh, Carolyn, we, we will stay with you now for a question from Stephen King, possibly the horror author, probably not. He asks if we're missing exoplanets, if there are exoplanets out there that we don't see simply because they don't transit between us and the star. Maybe they go around the top of the star instead. Okay, well, this is a good question. I mean, the transit method is a very useful method of both discovering and studying the, the physical properties of exoplanets. And how it works is if you have a planet in orbit around another star, if it happens to pass between you and its host star, its silhouette can cause a tiny reduction in the brightness of the host star. The effect is small. It could be as low as sort of 1% dimming in the star's brightness. But you're looking for a repeated pattern of dimming as the, the planet crosses in front of the star every time. And you can get a good signal. Once you've got this detection of the repeated dimming from the light curve, so this is the way the brightness of the star varies with time, you can work out all kinds of properties like the diameter of the planet, the size of the star, how often the planet's going around the star, therefore it's likely radius. You can then start to build up a lot of properties of the system. But... As Stephen says, there are limitations of this method, and the number one is that it's very dependent on the geometry of the system. You can only observe planetary transits for those planets whose orbits happen to be perfectly aligned from our point of view, and the probability that any kind of random alignment would be correct for that is about one in every 200 planetary systems. So in practice, even though we use this method for finding exoplanets, our best technique is to repeatedly look at thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of stars at once in order to be able to detect an appreciable number of such systems. And this is indeed the technique used by such survey programs using like the Kepler space satellite or the the WASP telescope. What you have to remember, though, of course, it's not the only way that we detect exoplanets. It's just one of the many methods available to us. We also detect exoplanets from the gravitational pull they exert on their host star, or we even occasionally block out the light from the host star and look for direct detection of the light from exoplanets. And we bring all of these techniques into play. And it gets even more exciting when you happen to have an exoplanet that exerts a gravitational pull on its star and also transits the star. And by then, you begin to be able to build up a lot more information because you have the mass and the size of the planet. You begin to tell something about its density and other physical properties. So, yeah, it does limit how many of these we can find, but there are enough stars out there that it is still quite an efficient method. More of your science questions later on. But now we'll stay with Carolyn, Andrew and Dominic for a look at this month's space science news. To kick off, Dominic's looking for lakes on Jupiter's moons. Well, this is a paper that I've spotted in the journal Nature this week, which suggests that Jupiter's moon Europa might harbour vast reservoirs of liquid water within a few kilometres of its surface. Now, the idea that there might be water beneath Europa's surface isn't that new. Its surface is very ice-rich, and because it's very smooth, we think that ice probably extends down to about 100 kilometres beneath the surface. And although on paper you might expect Europa to be a very cold place, because it's in orbit about Jupiter, a distance about five times further from the Sun than the Earth. In fact, because it's so close to Jupiter, it feels a very strong tidal gravitational force from Jupiter's gravity, and that is continually warping Europa's crust, just like the Earth's oceans are pulled up into tides by the Moon. And that means there's frictional heating of the interior of Europa, and that might mean some of this ice can melt beneath the surface 
and form vast oceans. And that's potentially very interesting because there could be life in those oceans. And we see similar sort of tidal friction-based heating on other moons as well. So it's, it's obviously a well-observed phenomenon. That's right. Io has the same very strong tidal forces, and that has made Io the most volcanic body anywhere in the solar system. But on Europa, the question about these liquid oceans of water has always been how deep beneath the surface they may be. And generally, people have thought they must be at least tens of kilometres beneath the surface. But writing in Nature this week, uh, Brittany Smith and her colleagues from the University of Texas have taken a new approach to analysing where these oceans might be. And they've looked in particular at two features that were spotted by the Galileo spacecraft nearly 20 years ago. And these are circular features. One of them is a dome-like feature which is raised above the surrounding terrain by about 200 metres. And the other one is a depression which dips about 800 metres below the surrounding terrain. And no one's really formed a very good model for how these features might have formed and what we might be seeing here. But inspired by looking at subglacial volcanoes in Iceland, Smitters proposed a model where you've got convection beneath Europa's surface and that's carrying heat towards the surface. And as you get towards the surface, the ice becomes more salt-rich, so its boiling point is depressed, and then you can get melting quite close to the surface. And when ice melts, it contracts, and that volume change means that you have a huge power of suction beneath the surface, which sucks the surface down to form a depression. And that also tends to crack the ice because of the tremendous forces at play, and so you have an inflow of new material. Now, a bit further down the line, that water will cool down again and it will refreeze and expand and you might expect that to just raise the depression back to the the normal level of the rest of the terrain but because there's been an inflow of new material into these cracks it actually pushes the surface up several hundred meters above the surrounding terrain so that's quite a neat model for how these circular features might have formed and if you put together exact models of how these two features might have formed, they suggest that there might be melted about three kilometres beneath the surface and the volume of water might be comparable to the US Great Lakes. So that's quite a lot of water and not that deep beneath the surface. Now, the really interesting consequences of this model, first of all, that there's water much closer to the surface than previously thought, probably not a habitat for life because of its transient existence. But more crucially, we seem to see one of these features in the middle of its formation, in the depressional phase, and that suggests that Europa is still geologically active. And that means there's probably a flow of material between the surface and these hypothetical lakes beneath the surface. And that means salt and the chemical building blocks for life can flow between the surface and these lakes down below. And that really ticks one of the boxes for the conditions that you might need for life down beneath the surface. So any minerals that land on the surface will quite easily get pulled down into these lakes. So they're going to be constantly replenished with resources that biochemistry might use up. That's right. You have dust and space junk landing on Europa's surface, and that's bringing new chemical elements to Europa. And it seems to be the case that those elements might be able to get down beneath the surface to where there's liquid water. 
So how are we going to follow that up and follow up these models to work out if, if that is the case and if these lakes really exist? Well, people have suggested sending space missions to Europa and actually digging down through this ice to try and reach the liquid oceans of water. It has to be said, I think that's science fiction for the moment, and it's not going to become technically feasible for many decades to come, particularly if we are looking at tens of kilometres beneath the surface. So there's obviously a lot of work still to do, but yet another tantalising thing that we need to uh, look at at some point in the future. Carolyn, what news do you have for us this month? Well, I thought it was only fair probably to do an update on one of the missions that I mentioned in the last podcast, and this is the the Russian one to Mars, called Phobos Grunt. Not just to Mars, but it was going to land on the largest moon, Phobos, and hopefully bring back a sample of the the surface regolith on the, the little moon. As probably everybody's heard, there was a malfunction during the last stages of launch, the Space probe got out into a low Earth orbit, but then the the booster engine failed to fire. It should have done a couple of times, one to take it into a higher orbit and then one to send it on its way to Mars. And that never happened. And so you've got this little Phobos grunt left circling Earth in a low orbit. And there have been international efforts to try and communicate with the spacecraft, try and get these booster engines to fire. But it's been a race against time. Now, first of all, you've got limited power on board, you can't actually open up the solar panels to this little space probes on its interplanetary flight. So while it's in low Earth orbit, you have to rely on battery power, and that is finite. And the saddest thing also is that you have the window for the route to Mars's moon Phobos has now closed as of this morning, 21st November. After that, it gets more difficult and you need uh, you know, a higher thrust velocity than the, the engine could provide even now if we could communicate with it. So it's very much a case of what do we do now? And there have been some interesting ideas. First of all, there's concern that if you let Phobos Grunt decay back into Earth's atmosphere... There are worries that have been expressed in the press that some of the toxins involved in the fuel tanks may not completely burn up on re-entry and that this is not a really desirable outcome. And more interestingly, there has been talk of recycling the mission, giving it a, a new destination, so at least salvaging something from the mission. Now, I don't really know how way out this is because it does require that we are able to communicate with the, the little probe. But if we could, there is a possibility that we could send it to an orbit round the moon instead as some kind of consolation prize not to actually land on the moon but to use a lot of the remote sensors and particularly around the Chinese satellite that it was carrying perhaps use those to study the moon instead and that would avoid the whole issue about uh, contaminants raining down as it re-enters the atmosphere so it's a case of watch this space can we still talk to it and what do what do the Russian space agency decide they can do with it so it's not quite game over yet how long until we can say right there's definitely nothing we can do it's going to land on earth and we have to prepare for that well it's interesting because at first they said it was going to come down within a few weeks but they watch the orbit of the spacecraft as it evolves and they find it's not decaying quite as quickly as they thought there's also the possibility they might be able to do some maneuvering to lengthen its life before it starts uh, hitting the upper atmosphere and so we're talking at the minute probably several weeks so into january before all hope is completely lost so they they have a much longer period to try and establish communication than originally thought
You say we've lost communication with it, but how do we actually communicate with it? Are we just sending radio signals? It's purely through radio signals. And it must be stressed that it's not just the Russians trying to contact it. A whole of the scientific community have pitched in and just trying to establish links to this little spacecraft. So not good news for the Russians, despite their successful Soyuz launch. It looks like they haven't really cracked this problem they have of getting any mission successfully to Mars. And it's not good news for that little... Chinese space probe was going to be the first Chinese satellite in orbit around Mars. So just fingers crossed now for the Mars Science Laboratory, which is going up at the end of the month, and uh, that NASA have more success. Well, as you say, fingers crossed. Andrew, what have you seen for us this month? Well, I was interested to see in the magazine Science some research that's casting doubt on how well we understand the very first stars to be formed in the universe. Now, the universe was certainly not born with any stars in it. It was born with with, uh, a lot of gas, but that gas was very uniformly spread out. So it's um, the action of gravity that causes uh, individual parcels of gas to collapse into dense balls, which um, is much the same process as is forming stars even in today's universe. And when that when those balls get dense enough, then nuclear processes can ignite and we form the first stars. But those first stars formed in, in when you look at the detail in a rather different way from the way that the stars are forming today, because although the basic process is the same, to get the gas to collapse down, you need to cool the gas because otherwise when the gas is sufficiently hot, there's a lot of pressure that stops it from collapsing down. And in the early universe, There was only hydrogen and helium, essentially. Whereas today, a lot of heavier elements uh, have already been generated by previous generations of stars. So today, the presence of those heavier elements makes it easier to cool gas than it was in in the early universe. And, And so we've been aware for a long time that the very first generation of stars, when it was just hydrogen and helium, must have had some rather different properties. Now, The big difference has always been thought to be that the early stars would have been extremely massive, at least 100 times the mass of our own sun, perhaps up to 1,000 times the mass of our own sun. But new research from Kyoto University and NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory has used better computer simulations than have been possible in the past to cast doubt on that idea. They're trying to see how stars form in detail. And what they've found that previously hasn't been found is that once you've formed, say, the core of your star, once the nuclear processes get going in the core of that star, they blow away a lot of the gas that previously we would have expected to rain down onto the surface of the star and and make it ultimately into a very massive star. So in the new picture, you uh, form a dense ball at the centre and then as soon as the nuclear processes ignite, much faster than than previously thought, a lot of gas from the outer reaches of the protostar gets blown away and the result is that the final mass of the star is actually considerably less than people were previously thinking. So how massive do we think they actually were? Well, these new simulations are pointing towards maybe a few tens times the mass of our sun. That's still, by today's standard, a fairly large star, but it's not one of the monsters that we were previously thinking would be, be forming. Now, 
The thing to bear in mind is, of course, this is just one research group. It's just one result from a computer simulation. We're going to have to see how other experts react uh, to these findings. It's a very complicated field. But at, at least in principle, this could be a very important finding because it changes our picture of the way the first stars are formed and therefore the build-up of the heavy elements at the very beginning of the universe and also a process known as reionization, which is essentially the process via which the universe becomes transparent, which is also reliant on forming some stars and essentially cooking the, the gas in the universe to, to make it into a transparent plasma. So these stars essentially formed in a time where, that we can't see into, in the sort of the universe's dark ages. So do we only have to rely on computer simulations and models to work out how they formed and what their life was like? Or are there sources of data? Is there something we can look for to try and get a handle on how they actually formed? Well, at the moment, we're pretty reliant on, on the models, although you can look for telltale signs by looking, for instance, if you, if you look in our own galaxy for uh, stars that have very few heavy elements in them. The particular ratios of one heavy element to another heavy element do give you sort of hints at what was going on in the very early universe. But what's really on the horizon here is the James Webb Space Telescope, which should be powerful enough to see back and, and directly see light that is coming from that very early epoch in the universe's history. And that really will start to give us direct observational understanding of, of what was going on. And now it's time for Fact Impact. And this month, it's all you need to know about stars. In the night sky, up to 6,000 stars can be seen with the unaided eye. But those stars aren't uniformly spread across the sky. Many of them cluster together into the band across the sky, which we call the Milky Way. Together, they form a flattened disk of stars, at least 100 billion in total. But that galaxy of stars is itself only one of many billions in the universe. Which places the total number of stars at perhaps 10,000 billion billion. That's 10 for every kilo of water in the Earth's oceans. Those stars of a vast range of masses. Tiny brown dwarfs may weigh in at less than a tenth of the sun, while giants like Betelgeuse have nearly 20 times the sun's mass. But even Betelgeuse is a lightweight compared to the southern sky's Eta Carina, which has the mass of over 100 suns. The surfaces of stars may be hot, thousands of degrees, but their cores are hotter still, tens of millions of degrees. And it's only the centre of a star, the very core, which is hot enough for nuclear fusion to take place, and that's the source of all the star's power. The amount of power produced by nuclear fusion depends on the star's mass. A star with 10 times more mass than the sun radiates 10,000 times more energy. So the spread of luminosities of stars makes even their spread of masses seem tiny. Every year, Eta Carina puts out more light than the sun does in 100 million years. That's the equivalent of blowing up more than two Earth masses of TNT every second. In other words, even though massive stars have more fuel, they burn it fast and die young. Betelgeuse may only be 10 million years old, but is already nearing the end of its life. That's despite our own sun being some 500 times older and still having 5 billion years left to live. So, a planet around Betelgeuse wouldn't be much of a place to live, but life might not be possible without massive stars. That's because their cores reach temperatures many times hotter than even the sun's core. The cores of massive stars are the only places in the universe where nuclear fusion can produce heavy elements like iron. All of the heavy elements in the Earth's crust were made in the centres of stars and much of it was blown out into interstellar space in the supernovae explosions that end their lives. We are 
quite literally made of the exhaust emissions of stars. This is Naked Astronomy. Supernovae are huge explosions that mark the death of a star, and as we've already heard, they help to distribute elements around the universe. But not all stars will explode like this, and it's not clear what causes some stars to undergo supernovae while others just collapse. To find out more, I met Professor Stephen Smart, Director of the Astrophysics Research Centre at Queen's University in Belfast. One of the things we're looking at is to try and work out which stars explode as supernovae. And supernovae are the brightest explosions that we see in the universe, apart from gamma ray bursts, which are probably a form of, of supernovae. And the reason supernovae are really interesting is that they've produced most of the chemical elements in the universe. So the oxygen we breathe, uh, the iron in our car, the silicon in the rocks, all of those were formed in supernova explosions in our galaxy. And over the last 10 to 12 billion years, there have been many generations of supernova explosions. And those elements, those heavy chemical elements that make planets and make life on Earth and maybe make life uh, elsewhere in the universe, um, they have been through uh, previous generations of stars. They've been cooked up in stars uh, and then they've been dispersed through the galaxy in supernova explosions. So we really want to understand what stars produce supernovae and hence where the chemical elements come from. So how do you go about learning about what the star was before it exploded? Because I assume we can see the supernovae itself and learn something about the act of supernovae, but how do you learn about what was there before? Supernovae are relatively easy to discover, and there are many amateur astronomers who discover supernovae, and quite interesting ones. Uh, there's a guy called Tom Bowles in England who is individually the most successful supernova hunter there's ever been. Big teams of professional astronomers have found more, of course, but as an individual, he is the most successful. Uh, so you can find them with a 20-centimeter telescope in your back garden if you look at enough galaxies for a, a, for a long enough uh, a length of time. Um, but how to find the stars that have exploded? That's a bit more difficult because... Typically, the supernovae are quite distant, uh, so the galaxies themselves look like, in a small telescope, they look like fuzzy blobs, and you can't see the individual stars. But with a telescope like the Hubble Space Telescope, that can observe distant galaxies, and it can find, it can actually see individual stars in those galaxies. And because Hubble has been up there for so long, it's been up there for 20 years now, and every image that it takes is saved in a computer disk in Baltimore and in Munich and has taken images of about 500 to 1,000 nearby galaxies where we can see the individual stars. So when Tom or another amateur supernova hunter or one of the professional searches finds a supernova in one of these galaxies, we rush and search the Hubble archive, the archive of all of the images that it's ever taken, to see if there's an image of that bit of sky and that galaxy before the supernova exploded. And if there is we can possibly identify the star that, uh, that actually exploded. So you're relying on the fact that you have this archive of images. That must make it tricky to really ask the questions that you want to ask because you can't just point whatever telescope it may be at a bit of the sky and say, right, that star's going to blow, let's learn about it before it does. Yeah, exactly. There's a, there's, there's a little bit of luck involved, quite a lot of, of luck involved, but statistically it's got to happen. We know that... A typical galaxy will have a supernova roughly once every 100 years. 
So if you have 500 galaxies, five supernovae in a, a, a year, roughly, uh, statistically, we know that supernovae have a rate of occurrence. And as long as we have enough data on those galaxies, on enough galaxies, for sure it will happen. And this is a, a, an idea we came up with 10 years ago, and we thought it is going to happen statistically, and it certainly has. We have had supernovae where we have images of the galaxy uh, beforehand, and then we actually see the star, measure how bright it is, and, and what size it is. So you're relying purely on visible light. You're not able to take advantage of the, the radio waves or any other spectrum that we do have also archives of. We look from the ultraviolet right through to the infrared, through the optical uh, p- piece of the spectrum. But most stars, stars give out most of their light between that region, between the ultraviolet and the infrared. That's where most of their energy comes out. So in the radio, they don't. most stars, normal stars, don't give out much radiation in the radio. So those are the areas to look at. And of course, that's where Hubble is good. It's good at looking at UV light. It's above the atmosphere. It can see the ultraviolet light of stars. But most of the stars that we see are actually quite cool. They're called red supergiants. These are the most common stars that produce super and these are red and cool. They're cooler than the sun. They're about 3,000. Uh, their surface temperature is about 3,000 degrees, and the sun's about uh, 5,400. Uh, so they're cooler than the sun, but they're much bigger than the sun, and they give out a lot of light in the red area of the optical spectrum and in the infrared. So what have you learned so far about these stars, the stars that are likely to go nova? So we find somewhere between 6 and 10 stars that then have exploded. We've gone back retrospectively, identified the star which has exploded. It's exactly at the same position as the supernova. Uh, We align these images. We often take an image with Hubble afterwards or with a big telescope in the ground, like the very large telescope in Chile, which produces very nice high-resolution images. We align them carefully, identify the star that explodes, and then measure its, uh, its luminosity, how bright it is, and what its mass is. Uh, we found, as I said, about between six and ten of these. As expected, m- most of them match uh, the stellar models, the computer models that we have of stars and our theoretical ideas of how stars evolve. But the major surprise is that we've now have 37 of them where we've gone and looked for a star at the position of the supernova. About 10 of them, we found something. 20 or so of them, there's no detection of any star there, which means it just means they're, that's, they're below the detection limit of the images, so they're relatively faint and relatively low mass. But the interesting thing, out of 37, we haven't yet found a very massive one above 20 times the mass of the sun. And we know that those stars exist, but they don't seem to produce the supernova that we see. So these really big stars, which, if I remember rightly, the more massive stars tend to be bluer, they just don't seem to be accounted for in your supernova records? Well, you're right that they're bluer when, they're, when they start their life on what we call the main sequence, and this is when they burn hydrogen to helium. This is where they spend 90% of their life. Uh, they're certainly blue. Uh, what happens, though, is that when the hydrogen fuel is finished and the, helium, it, the, the star burns helium to carbon and then carbon to, to uh, oxygen and silicon, the star moves to the red region uh, of the uh, of what we call the, the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, which is the fundamental diagram where we put stars. The stars expand and become redder, and then we presumably they explode. Those high-mass stars, when they become red, we should easily see them, and we don't see any of those in our images. Uh, some of the really high-mass ones then become blue again. They lose a lot of mass, and they become blue again. Uh, but again, we think we should have detected some of those in our images now, and we're probably missing statistically. We've done statistical calculations how many of these high mass stars we should see, and we think we're missing about twelve. 
The high mass stars are rarer than the low mass stars. That's been known since the 1950s when a guy called Ed Saltpeter came up with what, he, what uh, we term the initial mass function. And that just means if you take a cloud of gas that forms stars, many more low mass stars will form compared to high mass stars. But we know that relationship pretty well. And we know we've done the statistical calculation to see how many stars we're missing. So what do you think is happening to these enormous stars? So the possibilities are, the sort of boring possibilities are, there's a lot of dust in front of these stars. We've been a bit unlucky with our images and that they're not deep enough to detect some of these objects. I think we've, we're, we're probably beyond that now um, because we've looked at how we're doing the measurements, we've looked at our uncertainties. We think there's a real deficit of, of these stars. And one possibility, and the intriguing possibility is, These high-mass stars collapse to give black holes and they don't give any obvious supernova explosions or they don't give bright supernova explosions. There is some theoretical um, backup for this. If you look at the theoretical computer models of stars, of high-mass stars above 20 or 25 solar masses, they predict that the cores of the stars are large enough to produce a black hole. Now, no one knows exactly how a black hole will form and what type of supernova you might get from that. But there's not an unreasonable possibility that those they just collapse. There are also some simulations of the explosions of massive stars where the actual collapse of the core and the explosion is, is followed numerically in numerical simulations. Quite difficult uh, physical calculations to do. But they also have trouble exploding stars above 15 solar masses or so. Now, that's not direct evidence that, that, that this phenomenon actually happens. But it's not, it's not unreasonable to assume that this might occur. So what's got to be the next stage for you? How do you work out which of these to accept? Or how do you come up with new ideas in case you have to reject those ones? So I think what we want to do is rule out the boring possibilities, as I suggested. And one, one way is um, to do it is to continually to look in the near-infrared. A suggestion by some people is that there's lots of dust in front of these, these uh, the higher mass stars, and we don't see them just because they're obscured. But if you look in the infrared, uh, then typically the infrared light would penetrate that dust, and we would be able to see the stars. Um, so we would like to do this and continue to do this with uh, near-infrared images of of these galaxies and then look for the stars in, at, at, at those wavelengths. And there are some future space missions coming up which may be able to help us do that. Another way is, again, to look at the, in the UV area of the spectrum and the, what we call Wolf-Ray stars. These are massive stars that have lost their envelope and you're seeing the naked core, effectively, of the star. They're predicted to produce supernovae. We think they may just collapse. So, again, looking at another wavelength region, like the ultraviolet, would help us. Uh, just getting more statistics uh, will certainly help us, too, and looking at all individual interesting events. There's also... Um, ways to look at this theoretically to see if it makes sense. Uh, One problem we have with this idea that massive stars collapse to give black holes and no explosion is that we generally need massive stars between 20 and 30 solar masses to produce supernovae and to eject the oxygen in their cores to actually give us the oxygen that we see in the universe. So those models of chemical evolution of galaxies, um, they need oxygen coming out of 20 to 30 solar mass stars. So the less massive stars wouldn't have progressed far enough to actually be fusing into oxygen, so instead you'd get lots and lots of helium, but not necessarily the other elements that we need. Well, they do produce oxygen, the lower mass stars, the stars between 8 and 15 or 8 to 20 solar masses, but the amount of oxygen they produce 
is much lower than a, than a 30 solar mass star, there's a, a, a relationship between the amount of oxygen produced and the initial mass of the star, and that's quite a steep function between 15 and 30 solar masses. So we need those higher mass stars just because they get hotter and, and you burn helium and carbon to oxygen quicker. Oxygen is produced in, in much larger quantities. So how would you account for all the oxygen that we do see? I think we should go back and do our calculations again. And, and first of all, we need to estimate really how much oxygen is coming out of supernova explosions between stars of 8 solar masses to 20 or 25. And so one of our projects now and our future projects is for the supernova that we have detected stars as their progenitors to look at them in two years' time, a year's time or two years' time, and there you actually see the oxygen in the core in the, in the optical spectra to measure those lines and to apply some theoretical models. And we're working with uh, colleagues in Stockholm who've developed theoretical models to estimate the amount of oxygen in the spectra of those supernovae. And the goal is to tie down, you know, really measure how much oxygen is coming out of the explosion, how much iron is coming out as well, and see if we can match what we see, the paucity of high-mass stars, the lack of high-mass stars, reconcile that with the amount of oxygen we see coming out of these supernovae and see if it matches what we see in the galaxy. And just finally, what does this tell us about our current understanding of stellar evolution? Are there some aspects that are missing from our picture of how stars evolve? I think there's a lot of aspects missing on how we understand particularly high-mass stars. I would say between 8 and 20 solar masses, the models seem to be roughly right. We see supernova explosions from red supergiant stars. Those are what the stellar evolution models would predict are the endpoints of stars between 8 and 20 solar masses. We think that some of the what we call hydrogen-poor supernovae, they come from probably Wolf-Ray stars, but those stars may be produced in binary interactions. And we know that there are many 8 to 20 solar mass stars in binary systems. And so the numbers of those type of hydrogen-poor supernovae pretty much match what we would expect if there's a reasonable binary fraction between 8 and 20 solar masses. So I think between 8 and 20, it's not bad. There's a reasonable agreement between what we see in supernova explosions and what we see in, uh, we predict from our days of stellar evolution. Above 20 solar masses, I think the jury's still out on exactly what happens. We, see, we, we don't see these high mass progenitors, apart from maybe one or two, very, uh, which are clearly very rare. We've also, we also know that gamma ray bursts happen. They're pretty rare. They're probably less than 1% of all supernovae. We think they come from massive stars that are rotating really rapidly. Um, we've discovered a new, several new types of supernova which are extremely bright. They're 100 times brighter than normal supernovae. Uh, it's not clear what produces those. Um, they bizarrely tend to be in very small galaxies, so we get these giant supernovae in little dwarf galaxies. There's some evidence there to suggest that they come from the, mo- the most massive stars or stars above 20 solar masses. So I think above 20, I'm still not sure exactly what happens to what the final fate of stars is. That's Professor Stephen Smart from Queen's University, Belfast. And that's almost all we have for this month, but we just have time for a couple more of your questions. First, brown dwarfs are cool, dark bodies that are too large to be planets, but too small to be stars. And Helga Holler asks if they can account for the extra mass that we infer must be in the universe, the enigmatic dark matter. So the short answer is no, or at least a Brandorf certainly couldn't account for a significant fraction of the extra mass that we know has got to be there and that we call dark matter. So to explain how we arrive at that conclusion, we can measure fairly directly the 
density of dark matter in what we call a solar neighborhood. That's the region of our galaxy immediately surrounding our own solar system, but extending out to include uh, uh, the, the vicinity of other stars as well. And that measurement is performed by looking at how the nearby stars, the stars in the, that solar neighborhood, are moving. By doing that, it's a fairly direct calculation, and it tells you that there has to be extra matter above and beyond what you can see directly at a density of something like 10 to the minus 21, that, that's naught point, then 20 zeros, and then a 1, kilograms per meter cubed. So that's a, a pretty small density in terms of everyday densities, but we can convert that into something that's more sort of astronomically applicable. And in particular, if we're thinking of brown dwarfs, well, uh, a brown dwarf could be maybe about a tenth of the mass of the sun or equivalently about 80 times the mass of Jupiter. And so if you take that and work out how many brown dwarfs would you need to average out to this very small number of kilograms per every meter cubed, you come to one brown dwarf for every 200 cubic light years. Now, a cubic light year in terms of our own galaxy is not actually a huge volume. So, in other words, we actually need quite a lot of brown dwarfs. One per 200 cubic light years is actually quite a high density of brown dwarfs. And although brown dwarfs themselves are very dim and very hard to detect, there's a way of, of looking for them through what's known as microlensing. Microlensing is a type of gravitational lensing. Gravitational lensing is the effect where the gravitational force of an object causes light to bend around it and, and take a different path from the path it would have taken if that object weren't there. So if you have lots of these brown dwarfs flying around, then you look at a bright object, just a, a normal bright star. Every now and again, one of these brown dwarfs would fly past our own sight line to the distant star and then the micro lensing the, the gravitational lensing would kick in and we would see uh, a brief fluctuation in the brightness of the star that we were staring at in fact it's a very similar technique to how people look for planets around other stars but there the fluctuations in the light are caused by the planet literally blocking out light from the host star whereas here we're talking about a, a more subtle effect in any case, by looking for long enough at stars and seeing how often they change their brightness in this distinctive way, we can work out, is it possible that there are these brown dwarfs flying around? And the fact is that it's not. Various studies have concluded that there's just no way that you can have this population of brown dwarfs flying around to make up this mass without us having seen uh, this kind of evidence for them. So, it can't be brown dwarfs. And in fact, there's a, a quite a wide range of objects. It can't be it, it can't be sort of dark stars either. You might imagine somehow you could generate lots of stars that just aren't shining. It can't be those. It really does have to be very tiny individual particles rather than any big objects. So it's a nice idea, but simply the numbers just don't add up. Yeah, and it was taken very seriously as well, this kind of idea. But uh, now we've got the evidence that it just can't be right. There's another interesting argument for why I think it couldn't be brown dwarfs, which is that although brown dwarfs are very faint invisible light, they do produce relatively more infrared light than other stars. And if you look at the 
infrared light from the sky, you don't resolve that into individual brown dwarfs. But if there were as many as you would need to account for dark matter, then you'd expect the sky to be quite bright in infrared light, and you don't see that. So yet further evidence that this just isn't the case and dark matter is still eluding us. Well, Dominic, while I've got you, we've had another question, this one from Jim Firth, sort of staying with a a gravitational theme. He wants to know if Earth's gravitational field has ever been different. Has it actually changed throughout the history of the planet? Well, Newton's law of gravity for a spherical planet says that the gravitational field on the surface of that planet is proportional to the mass of the planet but it's inversely proportional to the square of how far you are from the centre of the planet. So it depends upon mass and upon physical size. Now, for the Earth, both of those quantities have been pretty much fixed for most of its history. You would expect there to have been a slight increase in its mass, particularly in its early history, as it was accreting rocky bodies and dust in the, the late heavy bombardment. But for the most part, its gravity will have been more or less the same throughout its history. And when we talk about variations in the Earth's gravity today, what we're really talking about is deviations from the Earth being completely spherically symmetric, so having different rocks beneath the surface means that different places have subtly different gravities, and you can use that, for example, to prospect for oil. But if you were to look, for example, at the Sun instead, it was a very different situation, because both the Sun's mass and the sun's radius are changing as it's evolving. So the sun is slowly losing mass to the solar wind, and we expect that process to accelerate as it gets towards the end of its life and it forms a planetary nebula as it throws off large amounts of its outer envelope of of gas, and that will lead to a subtle decrease in its gravity. But more dramatically, the sun's radius would change by quite a large degree as it gets towards the end of its life. First of all, it will expand to form a red giant star, and its surface gravity will decrease from, at the moment, it's about 30 times what we have on the Earth, down to less than 1% of what we have on the Earth. And the surface gravity of a star is a quantity that you can indirectly measure through its spectrum, so that is something you can see other stars doing. And when then once it's gone through its red giant phase, it will contract down to form a tiny white dwarf star with a radius similar to the radius of the Earth, and that will then have a surface gravity of several hundred thousand times what we have on the Earth. And for a more massive star that might form a neutron star, you'd be looking at about 100 billion times the strength of gravity we have on the Earth. So quite a tremendous gravitational field. So gravitational fields do change, but in line with some actually quite easy to understand, quite predictable rules. Yes, all about mass and radius. Thanks, Dominic. And that's all we have this month. Join us next time for more space science news, interviews and answers to your questions. And do keep your comments and questions coming in by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com and you can follow The Naked Scientists on Twitter. We're at Naked Scientists. Or join us on Facebook. Or join us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientists, and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.